Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. So back in the early 2000s, a documentary called Spellbound came out. It profiles eight kids who were, old, or who were finalists in the National Spelling Bee. Now, it may sound unlikely, but actually this is an utterly charming and captivating movie. I highly recommend it. And the eight kids that it follows come from all walks of life. One of them is the child of upper middle class professionals, professionals in Connecticut. Another is the daughter of immigrants in Texas who don't even speak English. But my favorite of the eight kids is a girl named Ashley. Ashley is a 13-year-old African-American girl, the daughter of a single mom, who has grown up in the poverty-stricken neighborhoods of Southeast DC. And she is as sincere and as earnest as she is smart. And in one clip of an interview with her, She's sitting on the small balcony of her apartment. She's dressed in her public school uniform. And with a big smile on her face, she's remembering the day that she won the DC citywide spelling bee. She says, I think I prayed. I prayed that night. I think I'm a prayer warrior. I don't know why, but some reason I just can't stop praying. Some people, like Ashley, are prayer warriors. Some of you are prayer warriors. You just can't stop praying. Some people are prayer warriors. And then there's the rest of us. For a lot of people, prayer is tough. I'd even venture to say that prayer is tough for everyone at some point along their journey. And yet we know that prayer is a central part of life as a follower of Jesus. The scriptures are full of prayer, from Genesis all the way through. Jesus prayed. Jesus' followers prayed. Our worship is full of prayer. As Anglicans, our central theological document is the Book of Common Prayer. We know that prayer is important, but prayer can be tough. It can be tough for a lot of different reasons. Given that we pray to an invisible God, prayer can sometimes feel like we're just talking to the ceiling or to an imaginary friend. Many of us haven't been taught how to listen to God in prayer, and so prayer ends up feeling like just a one-way conversation, and that gets kind of boring after a while. And even if we do listen for God, we can't compel God to speak. Sometimes God's response to our prayers really is silence. And that can be hard to take. I mean, what good is talking to God if God isn't going to talk back? And then there's the whole question of how prayer works or doesn't. Sometimes when we pray for something, we see God answer that prayer in very concrete ways. And that is wonderful. But sometimes, a lot of times, we don't. We pray for healing, 
yet the sick person dies. We pray for justice, for peace, yet the world continues to be plagued by poverty and violence and suffering. We pray for the desires of our hearts, and yet those desires go unfulfilled. And whether our prayers are answered or unanswered, we're still left wondering, how does it work? I mean, does my prayer change God's mind or cause God to act when he wouldn't have otherwise? If that's the case, it raises some challenging theological questions. And if it's not the case, then why bother praying? Prayer can be tough. Fortunately, though, Jesus didn't just pray. He taught about prayer, too. And that teaching is what we find in our gospel reading this morning. Now, Jesus packs a whole lot into these 13 verses. There's what we call the Lord's Prayer, although, as one commentator points out, it was how Jesus taught his disciples to pray, so we should probably call it the Disciples' Prayer. So there's the Lord's Prayer, there's a parable about prayer, there are some general teachings about prayer. There's a lot in here. And it's really tempting to look at all of this teaching that Jesus gives us and start mining it for techniques. Jesus' how-to guide, right? Like prayer for dummies. And while certainly there are some things that we can learn from this passage about how to pray, I think this passage is less about how than it is about the one to whom we pray. If you want to grow in prayer, Jesus seems to be saying, then grow in your knowledge and experience of the God you're praying to. And so today I want us to look at four different aspects, different qualities of God that I think are crucial for us to know or to grow deeper in our knowledge of as we seek to be people of prayer. That's not an exhaustive list. You can learn a lot more than four things from this passage. And it might actually be an interesting thing for you to do this week, to sit with it and look at what are all the things we can learn about God from this passage. But this morning, we're just going to look at four. So you might want to turn to the passage in your worship guide so we can look at this together. So we will begin with verse 2. Jesus said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. So when Jesus teaches his disciples to pray, what's the first thing he says? What's the first word? Father. Jesus tells his disciples that they come into prayer in the position of a child talking to his or her parent. That's a pretty remarkable relationship to get to have when you are talking to the eternal God who created the universe. Now, the idea that God's relationship to his people is that of a father to his children, it wouldn't have been entirely new to the disciples. I mean, it's throughout the Old Testament back in Exodus 4, Moses goes to Pharaoh to demand uh, freedom for the slaves, the Hebrew slaves. And Moses says, thus says Yahweh, Israel is my son, my firstborn. But it's one thing for God to describe his relationship to his people as father-like. It's kind of another thing altogether for Jesus to tell us 
that we can approach God with the confidence that comes from knowing that we're his beloved kids. But that's what Jesus tells us to do. And that means that we pray to a God who loves us, who delights to call us his children, who cares about us more than any human parent cares for their child. We pray to a God whose closeness and intimacy with us is even more than a human parent wants from their child. So when I call my parents, which I will confess I probably don't do often enough, but when I call my parents, I know they are always pleased to hear from me because I can hear it in their voices. And that makes me wonder how it would affect my prayer if I really believed that God had as much pleasure in his voice when I talk to him and he talks to me as my parents do when I call them. Now I recognize that not all of us have or had good relationships with our human fathers. Some of us may not have had a relationship with a human father at all. And so I realize that it's not uncomplicated to say, pray to God like he's your dad, because some of us didn't have very good dads. But the good news is that God is better than even the very best human father. So no matter what our relationship with our human fathers has been, God's relationship to us as our heavenly father is one of pure love and goodness and grace. And God can heal the wounds that our hearts and our minds carry Wounds that maybe we received from our human fathers or mothers. God wants us to know the true love of our heavenly father. So Jesus teaches us that we pray to a God who delights to be known as our father. Second, we learn that Jesus that God cares deeply about us, and he welcomes even our shameless requests of him. So here we're going to look at the parable that Jesus tells in verses 5 through 8. It's kind of a strange parable, right? Somebody gets woken up in the middle of the night because a friend of theirs has come into town and is looking for hospitality, a place to stay, some food to eat. And in the culture of the day, this was absolutely requisite. If someone came to you, you had to show them hospitality. It was scandalous not to. There's even maybe some sense that this person not having bread to give to his guests, that that was showing he was unprepared because everybody should have something to give to a guest who would come. And so what the host does, this person, he gets up, he goes next door, he bangs on the door, And says, give me some bread for my friends who just came. And the person says, I'm asleep in bed. My kids are here. You're going to wake them up. What are you doing? But then Jesus says, I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. So in a lot of translations, that word impudence gets translated as persistence. 
but that's also not really a right translation. Shamelessness is probably the best translation. This is the only time this word is used in the New Testament, so it's a little tricky to know exactly what it means, but shameless seems to be the closest thing. So the friend who comes and knocks on the door looking for bread is just, there's this boldness of their need, right? And there is a presumption that this person has that their neighbor will do something about it, right? He doesn't hesitate to knock on the door in the middle of the night and say, give me some of your bread to cover the, for the fact that I'm not prepared like I should be, right? There is something about that presumption, that impudence, that shamelessness that moves the neighbor to act. Now, we have to be careful with what we conclude about God from this parable. The parables are not one-to-one-to-one correlations, exactly. This parable does not mean that God is reticent in listening to or responding our prayers to our prayers. It doesn't mean that he's grudging about it. He doesn't mean, I can't believe you woke me up in the middle of the night to ask me that. This is the kind of parable that Jesus often tells where he sets up a situation with human things and he says, if, this, if humans are like this, how much more would God? So what he's saying here is that if a human friend will give what is needed by their friend because of that friend's boldness in coming to them and just the openness of their need, how much more? Is God going to give us what we need when we come to him with an open claim for what we need? God is delighted to have us come to him. We never have to worry about troubling God with our prayers. So we pray to a God who delights to be known as our father. We pray to a God who cares deeply about us and welcomes even our shameless requests of him. And we pray to a God whom we can trust to give us good gifts. So look at verses 11 to 13. Jesus says, What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? So if you, who are evil, yikes, you, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So imagine you have a small child, and it is morning, and your child is hungry, and your child wants breakfast. And your child comes into the kitchen and crawls up on the stool at the counter and says, Can I have some eggs for breakfast? Are you going to say, No? I mean, who do you think you are asking for eggs for breakfast? You want breakfast? Here, have spoiled milk and a rotten banana. You're going to give your kid breakfast. It's possible it might be cereal and not eggs. But you're going to give your child something that is nutritious and good, and you're not going to give them something that will harm them. So Jesus is saying that we can trust that God will give us good gifts. 
When we, resp- when we ask for something, God will respond, and he will respond with something good. It may not be exactly what we ask for. Maybe cereal, not eggs. But it will always be something good. We can trust that God will give us not just good things, but that God will give, him, give us the very best gift which is himself. How much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? God delights to give us the things that we need. God delights to give us the things that bring us joy. But most of all, God longs to give us himself. So we can trust that when we pray, God will hear our prayers, and God will respond with something good, even if it's not exactly what we ask for. So we pray to a God who delights to be known as our Father. We pray to a God who cares deeply about us and welcomes our shameless requests. We pray to a God whom we can trust to give us good gifts. And finally, we pray to a God who shapes us through our prayer. That's part of the point I think Jesus is making in verse 13. That when we pray, God gives us his spirit. When the Holy Spirit lives in us, he shapes us and he refines us. He changes our minds and our hearts to be more like his So that's part of what Jesus is talking about here. I'm also going to hop back to our Genesis reading for just a moment. In this this passage that we read, uh, Abraham is talking, maybe arguing, with God. Because God has told Abraham that he's going to go check out Sodom and see if everyone there is really as wicked as he has heard that they are. And he's going to do something about it. And Abraham says, God, are you really going to wipe out this city if there's anybody there who's righteous? So he starts bargaining with God. So, God, what if you found 50 righteous people? Are you still going to wipe out the whole city? And God says, no, if there are 50 people, 50 righteous people, I won't wipe out the city. And then Abraham's like, well, what about 45? Or 40? Or 30 or 20, and he finally gets down to 10. God, if there are only 10 righteous people in the whole city of Sodom, are you still going to wipe out the city? Now, I think this is a great illustration of asking God shamelessly for things, right? Even being willing to challenge God about God's conclusions. But there is more to this conversation between God and Abraham. Because if you think about it, this entire conversation is basically unnecessary. God already knows how many righteous people there are in the city, just zero. God knows the heart of every person in Sodom and Gomorrah. God doesn't need to investigate. So when Abraham asks if God would destroy the righteous along with the unrighteous, God could have avoided this whole conversation by just saying, 
There aren't any righteous in the city, not one of them. So don't worry that I am treating the righteous unjustly. Jonathan Sachs is an Orthodox Jewish rabbi who has written about this passage in his book, To Heal a Fractured World. And what Sachs says about this passage is that God doesn't do that. He doesn't head Abraham off at the past like that for a reason. God doesn't bypass this whole negotiation with Abraham because God wants to use it to teach Abraham something. See, right before this passage, God has just visited Abraham and Sarah and told them that even though they are old, they are going to have a baby and that God will make a great nation out of their family. And so God is using this conversation with Abraham, this conversation about Sodom, to help shape Abraham into the kind of father that God wants him to be. So this is what Jonathan Sachs writes. To be a father, implies the Bible, is to teach a child to question, to challenge, confront, dispute. God invites Abraham to do these things because he wants him to be the parent of a nation that will do these things. He does not want the people of the covenant to be one that accepts the evils and injustices of the world as the will of God. He wants them to hear the cry of the oppressed, the pain of the afflicted, and the plaint of the lonely. He wants them not to accept the world that is, because it is not the world that ought to be. He's giving Abraham a tutorial in what it is to teach a child to grow by challenging the existing scheme of things. In other words, God used Abraham's prayer to shape Abraham's heart. And God uses our prayer to shape our hearts. Because prayer isn't just a matter of our trying to get stuff from God. Because we pray to a God who loves us so much that he is not willing to leave us the way we are. God uses our prayer, our conversation with him, our wrestling with him, even our arguing with him. God uses that to teach us, to train us. To shape us into the kind of people he wants us to be. People who know that they are loved and people who can reflect and share that love to others. Mother Teresa said, I used to pray that God would feed the hungry or do this or that, but now I pray that he will guide me to do whatever I'm supposed to do, what I can do. I used to pray for answers but now I'm praying for strength. I used to believe that prayer changes things, but now I know that prayer changes us, and we change things. So what do we learn from Jesus and Abraham about prayer? We learn about the one to whom we pray. We learn that we pray to a God who delights to be known as our Father. We pray to a God who cares deeply about us and welcomes our shameless requests. We pray to a God whom we can trust to give us good gifts. And we pray to a God who shapes us through our prayer into people's, people whose hearts and minds reflect the heart and mind of God.
Prayer is tough, but prayer is vital. Not because it's how we get what we want out of God. Not because it's how we cut a few more notches in our holiness belts. Prayer is vital because that is the context where we experience the intimacy with our Heavenly Father that he created us for. I want to close with a a poem by Malcolm Geit. I know I often read his poems. I sort of fear one day you're going to tell me I'm not allowed to do this anymore, but they're really good. And he has a, uh, a group of seven sonnets on the Lord's Prayer in this book, Parable and Paradox. Um, and they're all great, but I want to close with this first one because I think it really captures the heart of what Jesus teaches about prayer and about the one to whom we pray. And this is written from the perspective of the disciple in the passage who asked Jesus to teach them to pray. It's called Our Father. I heard him call you his beloved son and saw his spirit lighten like a dove. I thought his words must be for you alone, knowing myself unworthy of his love. You pray in close communion with your father, So close, you say the two of you are one. I feel myself to be receding further, fallen away, an outcast and alone. And so I come and ask you how to pray, seeking a distant supplicant's petition, only to find you give your words away, as though I stood with you in your position as though your father were my father too, as though I found his welcome home in you. As we pray, may we find God's welcome home in our hearts. Amen.